Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. It is just after 9 a.m., and I'm wondering how many times you've already scrolled on your phone. If you're like me, sometimes I end up down an Instagram rabbit hole without noticing how much time has gone by. The videos make me laugh, and they often, those posts connect me to people I normally wouldn't meet. And, you know, those are just some of the positives about social media. But since the start of the year, we know that school districts in the states of Washington, California, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Florida have all sued social media platforms claiming they contributed to the decline of the mental health of children and teenagers. Last year, Minnesota passed a bill that allowed $1 million to go towards peer education training in schools about digital well-being. As I talk with my guests about our relationship with social media, I want to hear from you, too. Are you worried about how much a young person in your life is using social media? Are you worried about how much you use social media? What have you noticed about how screen time affects you? The phone lines are open, and here are the numbers to call. Call us at 651-227-6000. Again, that's 651 651- Two two seven six thousand, or you can call eight hundred two four two twenty eight twenty eight. And yes, you can use social media to connect with me. Tweet me at Angela Davis NPR. Let's bring in our guests all in the studio with me this morning. We have Danielle Robinson, a student at the University of Saint Thomas in Saint Paul, studying communications and media. She's also a youth council advisor for Live More, Screen Less, and sits on the organization's board. Now that's the organization that received that $1 million I just mentioned towards training youth to be more conscious of their screen habits. Good morning, Danielle. Nice to meet you. Good morning. Nice to meet you as well. Jude Michael is here. Jude is a research scientist at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health in the Division of Health Policy and Management. And he has spent the past 15 years studying people's use of social media and their health. Good morning to you, Jude. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. Hi. Nice to meet you. And we also have Stevie Chancellor here. Stevie is an assistant professor in computer science and engineering at the University of Minnesota. She builds and evaluates artificial intelligence for mental health in social media to make it more accurate and to meet people's needs. Hi, Stevie. Thanks for having me, Angela. Hi. This is great. I want to hear from everybody, and we will. Danielle, I want to start with you. Uh, I just used the phrase, the words, digital well-being. Uh, it felt good to say that. Yes. Well, what does digital well-being mean to you? Yeah, so digital well-being, at least for Live More Screen Less, the definition we use is digital well-being is um, di- um, intentional, balanced, and responsible use of technology so that we can all thrive and be well. And so we should be checking in on that. Yes, right? absolutely. Right? In the yeah. same way, I'm always complaining, my arm aches. But you know, my digital well-being, it's a little off too. Absolutely. And it's in the same way that when you say okay. my arm hurts and you want to you know, do something to fix that, our mental health and our emotional wealth, our cognitive health is just as important. Mm-hmm. And you're a college student now, but you first uh, got a smartphone, I hear, have here in my notes, when you were about 10 years old. Yes, that's um, So what was, describe what social media use was like for you at its worst? What do you remember about that? I would honestly say social media use at its worst for me is now. Um, I would say just with the influx of technology and the social media apps that are out now, Snapchat and Instagram and TikTok, because it is so much more, I think it has been worse. I think I have more uh, well-being practices that I've implemented, but 
um, as a 10 year old, um, I started with Snapchat and I, d- I guess I didn't, I wasn't aware, um, of it being as bad. So, um, I would say now that I'm aware of everything, it does seem worse. And so for folks not familiar with Snapchat, what does it do? How do we mm-hmm. engage with it? What's c- cool about it? Or what's the attraction to it? It started as a way, or I'm assuming the creators of it created it as a way to connect with your friends. You use it to take photos um, and you send a photo to a friend and you keep streaks. It's called streaks and you have to send a photo or multiple photos a day with this person to keep up a streak. And you're trying to get as many days as you can. And if you lose the streak, meaning you stopped, you didn't send a photo that day, then you've lost that streak. And people, I remember being in middle school, people would go to camp. If they couldn't bring their phones to camp, they would give their Snapchat password to their friend to keep their streaks for them while they were at camp. Right, because it's very important. It's very important. You and need to and so day to day, you're waking up in the morning, What's going to be my image so that I can keep my, my streak? Sometimes thinking about it. You know, it would be a, a selfie, you know, it would be our black screen. It would stop, nothing important mm-hmm. at all. So just talking about this is giving me anxiety. Anxiety <laughs> really common in all of us right now, whether there's a diagnosis or not. Uh, did it give you anxiety? Do you feel like yes. you have anxiety now? I do think I, 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 I do know that I have anxiety now. I do struggle with that heavily. And I absolutely do believe that social media apps and use, misuse has contributed to that. And also to, you know, I'm just meeting you, you, to me, appear very confident and self-assured. And so is that kind of what is the difficulty with this, that you may be know people, be close to people, have children um, that you know well and not be aware of, of like their digital well-being? Right. Yeah. You never know what people are going through. Um, you never know how they are using their mm-hmm. their social media. You never know how, how badly they might be using their technology and that's just the that's the gist of it um we are all for the most part i'm assuming that we don't use our technology in the ways that um they were intended to be used but that's because it was just thrown out and given to us as you know we were guinea pigs and they um just gave it to us to use right uh jude and and steve a lot of nodding i'm seeing right now jude uh how does what danielle just described fit in with the research about social media and mental health that, that you've been involved with Yeah. So one of the points that Danielle makes, and I think you made this as well, is about anxiety. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I noticed is like, you know, I was writing a paper recently about um, the mental health implications of social media engagement. And one of the things that we find is that there's there tends to be tally marks on both sides, right? It, It both causes and alleviates depression. It both causes and alleviates a number of different sort of mental health um, problems. But with anxiety, I think that's the one thing that in sort of doing this research, I was not able to find anything that said that it alleviated anxiety. Most of the features of social media engagement, most of the ways in which we're encouraged to engage with social media, um, you know, are are more tally marks on the side of increasing social media than decreasing it. Um, I also notice, you know, uh, one of the things that Danielle brings up is that we're not using them in the ways that they're intended. And I suspect Stevie will have more to say on this, but I suspect mm-hmm. we are using them exactly how we were, you know, we were kind of being promoted. I mean, these these this idea of, you know, a streak that encourages active participation and almost a scorekeeping, um, that's not by accident. People want us to continue to engage. And I think my favorite sort of example of this is in the Facebook um algorithms designed to sort of determine what you see on Facebook, right? When they moved from just the like button to the like and the heart and the care and the surprise and the laughing and the angry, the angry 
button was weighted at five times the weight of the like button. So the idea was that would determine more effectively what you saw because they wanted to increase engagement on the platform by making people mad, by causing people, I mean, I don't know if by causing people to fight, but definitely, you know, if that was an adverse byproduct. So there was encouragement there to bring out um, unpleasant emotions. Exactly. And I think that was done, um, you know, I don't remember when that button necessarily came out, but it, it became, I mean, you know, it came to a head in both um, the the elections as well as in a lot of the COVID discussions mm-hmm. that were happening. Why, I, I said in the introduction, you've been um, for 15 years studying people's use of social media. Uh, why is this important to you? The, oh, gosh, uh, I think what I've seen over time is more and more efforts on the part of social media platforms to encourage engagement at any cost. And so while I think that there are a lot of positives that can come from social media engagement, I mean, there's a lot that we didn't talk about in terms of validation, identity exploration, um, exposure and learning, social support. But I think that what we find is that when things are, are, are sort of driven by advertisement, we just need eyes on pages. And so whatever we have to do to get eyes on pages, that seems to be sort of the du jour kind of push. And it's, it's tragic, really, because I think, you know, those of us who didn't grow up with cell phones even have a problem with it. So I don't understand, like, for digital natives, how you ever extricate yourself from those environments. Right. There's just, there's just harm, harm. Um, Stevie, you are a computer scientist, uh, and you build and evaluate artificial intelligence um, for mental health and social media. So describe, like, like, what do we need to understand about the design of social media that, that keeps us scrolling and swiping and just kind of, you know, can't put it down? So each platform. Each mm-hmm. platform is designed in different ways to keep you engaged. Um, I love the example of Snapchat here because it's a one-to-one social relationship, right? You want to maintain that social capital and relationship with your friends. And so the streak is in some ways a signal of your social relationship and closeness with the person. You know how much you mean to me, Stevie. We've got a 500-day streak. Oh, my gosh. I lost a 200-day streak once, and my friend and I were upset. We knew we're close enough <laughs> We're close enough that it wasn't a big deal, but it was also something kind of important to us. Right. Um, but other platforms um, try and optimize for our engagement in different ways. And there's a lot of technical decisions that are made at the platform level that change your interaction with the platform. So Snapchat is a one-to-one messaging system. TikTok is a broadcast messaging system. You know, you might have heard of TikTok, your kids, your friends are using it. I use it. I love and also hate TikTok. Um, but what it does is it just gives you this live stream this of videos. Mm-hmm. And these videos, and they're, short. they're, they're short. really short, and they're typically pretty funny and punchy. They're dramatic. And they're also really, really well tailored to what the algorithm thinks you want. So much so that in some research studies, people think that TikTok's this oracle, helping them discover parts of their identity, discover new hobbies that they may be interested in, and raise awareness and advocacy for really important social issues too. But on the flip side, you can imagine that the feeling that it's an oracle hooks you in to make it, well, what's TikTok going to tell me about myself that I don't know yet? And if TikTok does tell me something about myself that's alarming or surprising, 
how am I going to think about that in the future? So it's, it's a really complex interweave of what technically people are designing into these platforms to engage you, as well as people's reactions to those platforms. That's really important, this like cycle mm-hmm. of engagement. And it can feel addictive. Absolutely. I, I think um, the addictive aspect of these platforms is really dependent, too, on who's using it and what they're getting from that platform. So there's some really good studies done. Um, Common Sense Media had a really good study recently about teen girls and using phones. Many of the girls described the um, the TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram as being addictive. But there's also some that don't describe it as addictive. For those that do, though, they get a lot of social value out of using the platform and also negative social value, too, of comparisons, keeping up with the Joneses, but for millennials and Gen Zs like me. Um, yeah, it's a lot of options. Wow. Um I'm kind of a. I'm feeling a little shook because I feel like I knew, but now I'm like I really know uh, from all the perspectives. Is there something you wanted to add right now, Drew? Okay, I want to take some phone calls because we're already getting phone calls from listeners. If you're just joining us, we're talking about social media and screen t- screen time. And uh, have you given some thought? Are you, are you finding yourself worried now about how much a young person in your life is using social media? Are you worried about your own social media use? And have you noticed how your screen time affects you? You can call us at six five one two two seven. 6,000 or call 800-242-2828. Tweet me at Angela Davis MPR. Uh, let's go to Andover and take a phone call. This is Mickey on the line. Good morning, Mickey. Thank you for calling in. Hi, what did you want to ask or share about social media? Well, I wanted to share that I have a 10-year-old granddaughter who I feel she's highly addicted to um, her phone screen time. Um, I'm just social media. She is so addicted to one day I was keeping her <clears throat> and I told her that she was on too long. Cause I know that when she's, when she's not with us, she can be on the, her phone even after school, 11 o'clock midnight. So she's on five or six hours a day on school nights and on weekends, it's just all day. And when I took it, the phone from her, I, I went in the kitchen and when I came back, she didn't know I was looking at her and she was on her knees beating herself in the head and I said what are you doing and she started squeezing her hands and going in circles and I just have to have my phone I just need my phone and it was so scary and I said when you're in school um how are you managing yourself you're in school and you're not having your game or your phone and she said she literally watched the clock and count the hours until she can get home so she can get her phone back and that made Mm -hmm. me so sad Mm mm-hmm uh, Mickey, I, I, I'm sorry you're going through this, and I am uh, sorry that your granddaughter is going through what she's going through. She's 10 years old. I want you to stay on the line. I want to ask each of our guests about what, what they hear and what you've described. Uh, and Danielle, I'll, I'll start with you because you're working with um, uh, the group Live More, Screen Less, um, and, and this is exactly what, what you guys are trying to do, educate folks about what's happening. So what are you hearing what Mickey's describing about this 10-year-old girl and the hours she's spending and just her, you know, as she described, she took the phone away and, and the child is beating herself in the head. It's like like withdrawal. Right. Well, one thing is with this 10-year-old is that 10 years ago, the smartphones and everything were already implemented into our world. And when I was 10 and received a smartphone or when I was younger, I mean, when I when I think about my childhood, I think about like up until I was 10, I didn't have a smartphone. So when mm-hmm. I think about 
up until 10 years old, I was riding Barbie Jeeps and like having lemonade stands and being outside and playing on bikes and things like that. And interacting with people. Interacting with people. Spending time in other ways. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so all that she knows or um, her granddaughter, I'm assuming, is her phone. And so she she's not, I'm assuming, not experiencing those things that um, we're supposed to be experiencing that are natural to us um, because our phones are abnormal. This is not a normal thing. And so it it seems that she has been given this device because young young people don't give young people devices. So right. That's um, just a given. And so she's been given a device and um, it has, like you were talking about, Stevie, like it has this addictive um, built into it. Built into it. So right. absolutely, she's going to be feeling these withdrawal effects from it. And it's it really is up to both the parents um, and her teachers and supporters um, around her to help her implement some practices to manage the the time that she has on her phone because like technology isn't going to go away but with live more screen less what we try to advocate for is the the healthy use of it so we would like we we try to promote being able to balance the time that you spend on your phone and your device and video games with other healthy practices so that you get both sides so first steps what advice would you have for this grandmother who wants to help Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, What would be the first steps? Even just words like what do you say to a a child in distress? Yeah. Well, one thing that we do in our peer education training where we have um, our five dimensions of well-being, um, one of one of the dimensions that we look at, um, we with uh, the emotional well-being, we talk about recognizing your emotions and naming them. So one thing that one piece of advice I would say is to sit her down and ask her um, to describe what she's feeling and mm. to sit with her feelings. What where is she, where is she feeling her anxiety and her stress in her body? Is it in her stomach? Is it in her chest? And have her point that out, and then try to then mitigate some of those negative effects. And then when it comes to her actual management on her phone or her device or anything like that i would say to um have use those screen time limits i think that those are really helpful and then um, what's the screen time limit yeah screen times um like on usually on an iphone an apple iphone you can put a screen time on a snapchat or instagram or any app you can limit it to like one hour and then it'll after you've spent an hour on that app it'll shut down and it'll say screen time limit up and then if you're a parent you can put on like a passcode so you can't that child can't break that limit unless that passcode is put in Mm -hmm. so then they could put that in and then you can you know with apps we receive um a release of dopamine um hits from these apps so then i would suggest doing activities in real life that don't have to do with your phone that also releases dopamine Mm -hmm. that are engaging thank you mickey does any of that sound helpful yeah, it does. I just I, want to hug her for you. Is that what you? I, I mean, you know, I would appreciate that because the mm-hmm. sadness that's in my heart, where you know, what kid doesn't like ice cream or McDonald's? And we go to McDonald's, and I'm like, you have you have to come in, and she's on her phone. I said, well, you can't. I'm not gonna. She just bring me something back. I'm like, no, you have to come in and order. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I'm not hungry then. It was that mm-hmm. bad. She mm-hmm. will refuse food. Mm-hmm. if she can hold on to her phone. So I'm taking and I'm welcoming hugs from all of you. And I yes. appreciate the hard work you guys are doing to right. bring awareness to this issue. Well, she's, chronic. she's winning right now because she's got a grandma who cares and who's trying to get educated and figure out what to do to help. Thank you. Um, and, oh, actually, Mickey, stay with us because now Jude's going to talk to you. So Jude, okay. you're a research scientist there. 
<laughs> just like, what? Now, you're a research scientist at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. You've studied social media use for 15 years. Uh, does this unfortunately sound somewhat familiar? You've heard a story like this before. I have. I think, you know, it's not unfamiliar. And I think I, I wear two different hats in this situation. The first one is as a researcher and the second one is as a parent. Because you have two I have three. Yeah, three I have kids. a 22-year-old, a 13-year-old, and an 8-year-old. So I'm mm-hmm. kind of in the thick of a lot of what you're talking about. And I know that in some ways during the pandemic, we pushed so many kids into online spaces for everything. And that's how so they did now, school, yeah, right? that's how they did school. It's how they did social. And so now I think this prospect of yanking them off and saying, okay, now time to go outside. Outside's been a scary place for kids for quite some time. And this is a big, this is a big portion of her sort of, uh, of her life thus far. Right. And so, you know, I, I think kids have a great way of, of manifesting anxiety and stress in ways that are really triggering for adults. Um, I don't know that to me, I would be overly, overly concerned just because of the way that kids tend to kind of show their frustration. Yeah, they, they freak out all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if I had a dime for every time one of my kid, you know, w- one of my kids freaked out about something. And when I was a kid, it was TV. You know, mm-hmm. so if you take away something that's a, an anchor for a kid, it's natural that the kid's going to exhibit some frustration. And I understand that this, you know, maybe kind of extends beyond what you were hoping to see. But I think in some ways, you know, it's a transition device. If the kid's spending a lot of time at home and this is a new environment, that, that what we talk about in some of my research is how the internet or how um, the access to platforms and things can serve as this transition device. So you're not really in a new, you might be in a new physical setting, but you're not 100% in new settings because you have your, you know, for some kids, it's a blanket. For some kids, it's their phone. And I and I know that that's a tragic thing to say, but I I kind of so Danielle mentioned uh, the limits, the time limits that you can use. Parents can set them up. The kids themselves have you in your research found that that's effective. Does that help? Just to yeah, let you know, so, like you, this is a lot of time you're doing. Yeah, this. absolutely. I think the I think the time tracking even more than the time limits, letting somebody know how long they've been online or how long they've spent online. I love the idea of of limits and making sure. And then the other thing is there's a ton of research showing that there's sleep disruption that goes along with. Absolutely. And so shutting it off at a certain time, no matter how much they've been online, you might've gotten the phone at 10:59. If it's 11 o'clock, the phone shuts down. It's time to go to bed and the phone's left in a different room. Mm. And Stevie, what do you say to this? Because you can't just say, put your phone down. No, you can't. I, well, you can, but you also can't. I think we have to it's just meet the kid, meet the kid where they're at. Jude's point about us putting kids online for two and a half years for, for school, school, for funerals, for social, for birthdays. Everything was online to keep us safe. Um, and it's difficult for a 10 year old who doesn't have the cognitive skills yet to be able to recognize, hey, I really need to put my phone down and take a walk or this is right. making me really anxious. It's making me feel bad about my friends. I need to take a step back. And she doesn't have the words to express those. Exactly. Thoughts, and possibly, so I think. like to talk. So I have a toddler. And so we're not at the screen time debate yet, um, but we will be soon. And the thing my um, partner and I have talked about um, is about how do you develop age appropriate skills and practices for a kid? So at 10 years old, what would be something that is age appropriate, but also kid appropriate, given your kid's just disposition? 
You can't teach a kid how to ride a bike without showing them how to do it. And you have to teach them how to use social media and their phones in ways that's constructive. Sometimes it means putting screen limits or screen time limits. Sometimes it means blocking apps entirely because the content is not yet safe enough for them to know how to interact with like an adult would. But a 10-year-old may actually have some benefits that they could get from being on Instagram in child mode for 30 to 45 minutes a day. Another tip for parents, a lot of apps have built in um, kid protections that you can put inside an app. So in addition to limiting screen time or the minutes that a kid engages with an app, you can also go in and restrict certain kinds of content from appearing in the app. Instagram and um, TikTok have this. You can block certain hashtags or words from appearing. And so maybe you want to give your kid the ability, they're a budding artist, you want them to be able to see other artists and teen artists on Instagram. And you can help guide them to that maybe you don't want them to see other kinds of content maybe mm-hmm. you, you won't let so them i have a question in, in in defense of the parents uh what if you don't have the technical skills to get in the app you don't even know the, the app the child is using so you're talking about getting the app and setting and restrictions what do you do danielle do i call danielle can someone help me with this you could call me if you want <laughs> <laughs> but but with, with, with the, your uh group that you're working with live more yes. screen less this is some this is what we're talking about this education component and, and giving people resources yes. to be able to help themselves so mm-hmm. is that something that that happens that that parents can get help with yeah, so we have a resource hub online that, um, with our digital well-being bill that has been implemented, um, that both parents, teachers, and students can go on on to, you know, get that help with, um, as well as like the peer education training we do um, see for we we do hope in in the future that 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 is implemented in multiple schools so that that teachers can give students so they can learn some of those. You no, know, mm-hmm. things like that. And then um, we have a professional development training as well for the teachers so they can learn and then for parents as well. Mm. So it goes to a higher level at that point. And Mickey, I'm going to come back to you. Do you think uh, that uh, your granddaughter's school, are there some people at the school, do you think, who could be of help? Is this something that you would, would feel comfortable talking to the principal or teachers about? Well, I know her mom has talked to the principal, her teacher, and the school social worker mm-hmm. and trying to get her mm-hmm. to understand, you know, the not have you know about the phone and and she also went to a doctor who said that she had her anxiety has increased um i mean really increased over this the this social media she can't handle it and she snuck her phone to school before but the school personnel they are aware of it they're trying to work with her um it's actually it's actually beyond just I mean, it's scary. I mean, mm-hmm. she cannot function without it. And I know my daughter had taken it away and put in her phone in her bedroom. And when she came looking for it, it was gone. She's getting to the point where she's being deceptive and sneaking in her mom's purse, taking it out. Mm-hmm. Um, and they live in two homes. Otherwise, she would, the mom would just take the phone but because that's common for a lot of, of children they have two homes or living mm-hmm. and one parent yeah. is the other parent is just as addicted mm-hmm. as she is so that's why she has zero limits mm-hmm. but um and so it's it's she's actually been to the doctor for it um she will refuse food right. for this device 
Well, Mickey, uh, I, I appreciate your, your honesty and your courage for calling in and sharing your story. I know you've helped many people because there are many other people uh, in the same situation. And I'm so glad mm-hmm. that, again, she has you in her life. Thank you, Mickey. Um, Thank you. Yeah. And Stevie, uh, I have in my notes here that, that you right now are looking into how artificial intelligence and social media, um, how they might, uh, you know, be connected to leading to someone to a mental health crisis. And so tell me about this research you're working on as far as AI and mental health crises. Yeah, so the research that I do um, looks at how we can make AI that predicts what I would call dangerous or more crisis situations in mental health. We can predict when it's going to happen. And then eventually, could we do something when we might detect that something dangerous might happen? So when I say dangerous, I am specifically referring to people who go to online communities to talk about injuring themselves or who may be in a suicide crisis. And people need to know that those communities exist. They do. And they are really a big, complex community. Oftentimes, people that are experiencing these thoughts and behaviors feel really isolated and alone. Mm -hmm. And so by reaching out to a group of people that are also experiencing these feelings, it can actually be very safe in some ways for them to talk to somebody else who's like, yeah, I'm going through this too. But in many cases, um, these communities may also share advice or ideas about mm-hmm. worsening these um We've behaviors. talked about this on the show before, yeah. that there are videos that exist. Oh, the videos that, are really That tough. encourage people or show people how to do harm to themselves. Yeah, those are the, the hardest, at least for me emotionally, um, as someone who ha- like spends a lot of time looking at this content. Those are the, wor- the hardest for me. Mm-hmm. Going to go back to the phone lines right now, talk to more of our listeners in Apple Valley. Kiri is on the line. Kiri, good morning to you. Thank you for calling. Am, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yeah, that's Carrie. Okay, thank you. What did you want to tell us? So I just had a lot of um, few different ways to talk about this. Uh, I am a parent. I have two young kids, one kindergarten, one preschool. And um, I myself uh, am in my 30s. So I had social media right as I was getting, you know, to be teens. And um, I'm noticing that it, it's kind of an issue for all generations right now. Um, mm-hmm. I just listened to that uh, grandma who had a 10-year-old, and um, I just kind of want to mention that, like, kids that are really young in preschool, kindergarten ages are, you know, kind of given screens as um, something that they can use, but I find that it can be very challenging because I see a lot of kids who are put on, like, YouTube Kids and just kind of let go. And um, the What is that again? You- that- YouTube Kids? Yes, YouTube kids, and kind of just let them run with it. And I think that's super dangerous. There were a lot of issues well before that, um, or a few years back, where they were just uh, some content that was not kid-friendly. And um, I think that as parents, it is our duty to be monitoring exactly what our kids are doing on the screens, and Mm -hmm. if that's YouTube kids or whatever. So we are very strict with what we allow on screen time, Um and uh, so we only allow a certain app, um, mostly just educational apps. And then we make sure that, you know, any kind of streaming device that we have on there, like Netflix or Disney, are linked to or are set to the child's appropriate age. Um, mm-hmm. So they cannot watch anything that is beyond what they should be watching. Um, and we do not allow for YouTube kids because it's just not easy to monitor that. Um, I think that a lot of the laws coming in for teens is very important because um, I, myself as a parent, am hoping that I can find a group of other parents like-minded that are not going to allow their kids into social media until they are well 
out of their older teens. And can I ask you a question? Um, You know, I I think just being out and about, you do see when you do see toddlers, maybe at the grocery store, uh, so many of them do Mm -hmm. have an iPad in their hand or a parent's phone. And so uh, what what is that about? Is that about giving them something to entertain themselves, helping them, uh, you know, I don't know, with their verbal skills or how to read and write? I mean, why do a lot a lot of folks will wonder, like, why do toddlers have screen time at all? So there's a lot of, like, we allow for some screen time, um, like when we're in the car or if it's like a long trip. Um, but again, we have it very locked down to only settings that, or only apps and settings that mm-hmm. are appropriate to them. We usually only allow for educational um, situations, but I have talked to a few parents who have kind of let their child, and I do know of some parents who have let their child kind of roam onto YouTube Kids, and um, I actually feel like that has really been detrimental uh, to that 10-year-old who is having issues. I actually have seen it in younger kids, too. Um, some people who feel like, oh, man, I can't get her to sleep. I'm going to reward her with some screen time, some YouTube Kids right before bed, and then it takes like forever for them to get to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, when they're out and about, instead of having the kids do normal, you know, crazy things, you know, in the grocery store, maybe they put a phone in front of them and, um, try to make them quiet, which I understand right. sometimes. Let's learn, let's hard, learn the names of some of these, age. these vegetables. Yeah. Let's count some things. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. There's so some I other activities. Like can, I hear yeah, you. Yeah. There's a lot of different things we can do with that. Okay. And I also wanted to just bring up like, as me as a millennial, I definitely have an issue with being on screens, but I'm also seeing a lot of older generations, like my parents are in the boomer generation, and I see that they are having a very hard time with like um, being on Facebook and not really understanding that a lot of these, uh, a lot of people hack and a lot of people, you know, send out like all these spam Mm -hmm. um, messages and they like the privacy messages on Facebook are showing up a lot. And I see, you know, that generation, you know, Oh, today is a privacy issue, and please right. share it. And I guess share it. You've shared a lot. And I just want to give our guests a, a, a time, some time yeah. to talk about all of this. But thank you so much. And I, I'm wishing you well um, having those, uh, those two young kids, that kindergartner and that preschooler. Uh, Stevie, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you're a computer scientist. You're also a mom with a toddler. Yeah. Um, so what, tell me about the YouTube kids. What's on there? So I just want to say I am so sympathetic to yeah. toddler moms who need to do shopping without their kid screaming in the in mm-hmm. the supermarket. Sometimes a screen is a good way to occupy a kid for 10 or 15 minutes when you really, really need to get something done. Mm-hmm. But I think that often we treat screens as this panacea or solution to lots of different problems when, in fact, we may actually be able, when we have a moment to think, what are some other options that we could use? Mm-hmm. And uh, about YouTube Kids specifically, there was this really um, complicated news story that came out where content creators were gaming YouTube's algorithm to put these wildly inappropriate AI-generated videos that got into the YouTube Kids app because they were, you know, automated or AI characters of like Mickey Mouse and Disney characters dancing with music, but they were very, very bizarre videos um, that slipped into YouTube Kids. And if, so, so, what's on there? Like cartoons and videos or animated? YouTube Kids is typically uh, like children curated animated videos, um, toddler singing, like right. stories, counting games, stuff that you would typically see on, say, Netflix Kids or on right. the TV and like the kids slots. Um, but that sounds harmless to me. Most of the time, it is harmless, but 
when creators who are making these videos figure out ways to game the tags and to game YouTube's algorithm into appearing in those spaces, sometimes some very bizarre content appears mm-hmm. there. And let's be honest, millions of hours are up of video are uploaded to YouTube every single day. Right. There's no way that a human can go through, watch every single video, and make sure that this is exactly what happens. And so my work thinks about, well, how might you actually automate some of that detection to keep the worst of the worst content out of some social media? Now, in this case, an AI system has failed in not banning this bizarre content from appearing in YouTube Kids. Mm. And also, uh, she brought up a great point. She's like, I... She's like, I grew up, I was a teenager on social media. So, so, was I. so yeah, you have like millennial parents who now have these little kids. So, so wow, we're in a different place generationally. And uh, you, you've been in the game a long time. <laughs> you wanted to talk about like how <clears throat> things have changed in different categories, because not all of these uh, social media platforms are the same and they all have the different kind of pros and cons. So right. what did you what did you hear first in this this young mom? So to, to start, I actually heard her say that it was all generations who struggled with similar yeah. issues. But the yeah. issue actually that I have is that runs a little counter to what we found during the covid pandemic. We actually did a study where we looked at sort of how people were leveraging social media to bridge social distance. Right. How mm-hmm. were people using this as a tool for connection? And we found actually some pretty good evidence that it was an effective tool for sharing a lot of information, um, social rules of engagement and things like that. And we actually ended up parsing apart the study from the general population and the older adult population. And what we found was that older adults are actually pretty good at monitoring their social media use and using a really purposeful targeted engagement strategy so they don't tend to get caught in these rabbit holes, at least in this qualitative study that we did where we followed them over multiple weeks during the shutdown. We weren't seeing people falling down these rabbit holes and what you Mm -hmm. call doom scrolling, which is just kind of scrolling endlessly with no targeted, you know, Right. So, so they're all different. They're designed differently and they have different effects and people use them differently. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I, I, I meant to get to your question, too. I think one of the things that I would say is over the over the 15 years that I've been in social media, we went from this sort of, um, you know, mass produced um, hybrid kind of like, oh, I knew this person or I know this person in real life and now we're going to connect on social media in order to sort of shore up that friendship through a mm-hmm. different medium. And over the last 15 years, there's been this sort of shift where it's actually become fewer content creators creating for a more passive audience. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what we know about in, you know, active versus passive engagement is that most studies show that the more active you are, the more you're generating content, the more you're talking to people, the more you're using this as a as a tool to build connection, you know, mm-hmm. voice to voice or text to text. Um, the better it is. And the more we sort of seep into that passive space of TikToks and doom scrolling and really just being passive recipients of content, the the worse that is for our mental health. As we think about really young kids, uh, Danielle, I have in my notes here that you you are a mentor now to some of the younger children in your family. So who yes. are you mentoring and what does that mean? <laughs> yes. What are you doing? Um, so I... I guess I'm a mentor too. I don't know if they'd call me that. To them. <laughs> they would, but, but I would like to call myself a mentor too. Um, my nieces. I have two nieces. How old are they? Um, nine and five. Okay. Um, so I, they are also heavily involved in um, video games, and the five year old does not um, have a phone, but the nine year old does. Um, very similar to the uh, woman who called earlier about her granddaughter, um, but. 
oftentimes when they're either over my house or if I am hanging out with them, I am really, I am very aware of this issue with the the phone screen time because of the fact that I am with this organization. And honestly, if I wasn't with Live More Screen Less, I don't think I would be as aware. Mm-hmm. But I really want to use the time that I spend with them very intentionally because I know the importance and significance of human connection because we were born social beings. And I think that that was a huge part of why some of these social media creators created these devices and these apps so that we could be social in a different way, but an abnormal way that keeps us mm-hmm. addicted and connected in ways that um, are just negative and wrong. So what so. does that mean? They come to you. So you're prepared. Mm-hmm. You're already thinking. Yeah, How are we going to spend thinking. our time? Yes. Right? So what yeah. does that look like? Because like, like, people may be wondering, well, what do I, what do, I do with a, yeah. a five-year-old or a nine-year-old? I, there's only, they don't want to talk, but so much. Yes. Like, what do you do? <laughs> well, I think about, and this is, I've, I've been asked, parents have a- asked me to what, you know, what do I do instead of, you know, just Mm -hmm. give them a phone or something like that? And I ask the question, what is it that is replacing their phone? Ask ask yourself that. What is it that you did in your childhood at that age that they have never experienced before? And try doing that. So like I said before, I received a phone when I was 10 as well, a smartphone, but I didn't up until then. So Mm -hmm. all of those years that they're living right now, they experienced a phone. But what I shared before, lemonade stands and driving my Barbie Jeep or taking a walk to Walgreens to get candy with the quarters that I would get from doing like household chores, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. I would have them do stuff like things like that. You know, why don't you go vacuum the living room and then you can get some quarters? And because that's little small rewards release those dopamine hits the same way that their video games do. So, so let's be thoughtful. I got mm-hmm. one for you. Mm-hmm. I used to take a deck of cards and build a house with them. Oh, that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good times, <laughs> exactly. Yes, and the other thing I was going to say, and with um, live more screen less, we talk about certain ways that we. Um, um, can have these well-being practices. And an, another way is just being bored because no one thinks about this, but as kids, you, oh, you just need worse. to do nothing. I'm bored. You just need to do nothing. And I'm bored. <laughs> you need to be bored. It, it's Why? so important what, to just do what, nothing. What do we get out of boredom? Or maybe a different word should be used for that. What is it? Creativity. Self-reflection. Self-reflection. Discovery. Curiosity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More head nods from my parents over here, Jude. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Be bored. Sit over I think, be bored. Yeah, I, I think about this. You know, we we're guilty of that same phenomenon where we'll just give the kids the devices in the car. But I think about what I did in the car, and looked you looked out the, out window. the window, right? And oh, did okay, you, all together. You, did, you play, looked out the window. <laughs> you played the alphabet game, so you're increasing literacy skills. I mean, mm-hmm. so much of of what we find to do. Um, to stave off boredom taxes our brains in new and creative ways. And I think we've lost that. And you see, uh, people think it's harmless. Oh, I'm on public transit. What was I going to do anyway? Well, you might look at the Mississippi as you cross the bridge into campus. It's a beautiful river. You should probably see it more often. Mm-hmm. I'm going to take another phone call. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say boredom is rest. Boredom is Ooh. a time for our brains to just chill out and look at the Mississippi and just let our minds wander. Mm. That's something that I think phones will just jump in and replace when we're feeling just a little uncomfortable, just a little bored, just a little anxious. And sometimes it's fine to just kind of sit and be bored. I'm sorry. I called you Mickey. I'm thinking that uh, grandma Stevie. <laughs> Stevie. Yes. So with your, your toddler, is it one toddler or two? one toddler? One toddler. Um, are you thinking about what will boredom look like? And what are you are you thinking about it? Like, what are you going to do as, as as your child gets older to occupy yeah. their time? Yeah, we've been we've been talking a lot about this. And I, I really think Danielle's point about what did I do when I was a kid, right? I was outside climbing trees and making mud pies, playing with the dog Ooh, and mud pies, mud pies, getting into mischief, right? A little bit of mischief, a little bit 
bit of um, self-exploration, time to learn my limits and to learn my skills and what I could do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that a lot of that, we, we assume that the phone's going to replace mm-hmm. those kind of activities. But in many ways, being outside and being with people, we can't okay. do that with a digital device. Okay, I have a, a phone call I want to get to before we're out of time. Uh, in Minneapolis, Jason's on the line. Jason, thank you for waiting. And what do you want to share or ask? Hi. Yeah. Um, I have a son who's 11 and a half who is autistic and has ADHD. He goes mm-hmm. to a small mainstream school and he does, he does fine academically, you know, with accommodations, but emotionally and socially, socially, you know, he's, he's definitely not in step with his peers. And mm-hmm. I worry, you know, he's getting into that age. Like he doesn't, he doesn't use social media now. He doesn't have a phone or anything like that, but He's getting into that age. He's about to, you know, not long before teens. And I feel like it's going to be, he's going to be getting even more out of step with his peers if he doesn't engage in social media. But if he does, I feel like it will also probably go poorly because he doesn't have those emotional and social skills. And, you know, it's it, it, obviously it's a, a, another avenue for bullying and mm-hmm. for exclusion. He has, you know, he has a physical and uh, verbal tics and stuff like that. So he's kind of a, he definitely sticks out, you know, that way. And so I'm just like, I feel like I'm kind of caught in a kind of no win mm-hmm. situation. Like neither choice is good. All right, uh, Jason in Minneapolis, a lot of parents uh, uh, working with children on the autism spectrum. Anything that you would say uh, to Jason, Jude? I would say, first off, there's no, there really is no excuse for unsupervised <clears throat> social media engagement. Pretty much, I would say, while your kids are at your house. But um, there is a lot of compelling research that shows that for kids with communication difficulties, mm-hmm. this is a great tool. It's a great way to make friends. It's a great way. And if you can control, and this is, I think, another key component, if you can control the environment that they're in, Discord kind of allows you to allow different people people to enter into your chat space or Slack has this way that you can kind of like um, invite different people. So it's, it's, it's a group of kids, you know, but the communication is online. And what it allows for a kid with autism to do is really um, portray themselves in their mo- like through their most authentic mm-hmm. self, you know, that you can you can kind of curate, you can kind of edit, you can kind of, um, you know, the, the verbal tics aren't so much an issue, because you right. have this chance to go in and present and edit as needed. So it can be helpful, Mickey. Oh, gosh. I just renamed <laughs> you, you know, Stevie. It's funny, my middle name's Nicole. So you're okay. actually... I'm sorry. You're pro- you got- <laughs> Stevie, what would you add a, uh, about uh, children with autism? Yeah, I would actually... I, I totally want to plus one everything that Jude said. But also, um, there are opportunities for social media to be a very positive force for a lot of young people. TikTok in particular has creators with disabilities like ADHD mm. and who are on the spectrum, um, as well as creators with verbal tics. And maybe these people are models that we can start to show kids to make them feel less alone. Um, a lot of these creators also have good advice for, you know, what could you have in moments where um, you may be getting a little anxious. So one of my creators that we were talking to um, during an interview was talking about using jelly bracelets or like fidget toys to distract them so that they could stay focused. Um, there's a lot of really positive information out there. And like Jude was saying, let's engage with our kids about what they're seeing. Talk to them about what kind of content that they want and setting reasonable boundaries like 
training wheels on a bicycle to teach our kids how to be successful on these platforms. I love that analogy. And I, I love this conversation. I have learned so much. And I, I want to thank our guests and thank all of our listeners who called in with great questions and, and stories. We've been talking with Jude Michael, a research scientist at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Stevie Chancellor Stevie, an assistant professor in computer science and engineering at the University of Minnesota, and Danielle Robinson there, a student at uh, St. Thomas University and a youth council advisor for Live More, Screen Less. Thank you all, Danielle, Stevie, and Jude. This conversation today was produced by Danielle Cloutier. All right, we'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, Tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.